Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. We're at episode 151. Today we're going to have another Fly Fishing Accusations podcast, which it's kind of a Q&A, but at the same time it's just an opportunity for me to kind of take some listener and reader feedback and interact with it. So it's not a straightforward, like, I'm the expert I'm going to bestow my wisdom upon you, although hopefully some of the things I, I talk about can be direct helps to your questions or your own fishing situations, but it really it's more of uh, taking feedback that I get from people who listen to the podcast, people who read the website, and then interacting with their thoughts on things that I've written or that I've talked about recently. And so usually I do that on every 10 episodes, but of course last episode I had uh, my boys on and uh, they interviewed me. That was a pretty fun thing. I think they did an excellent job with that. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to episode 150, I would encourage you to go back and do it. I don't say this often, but I'd say go ahead and pause this. Go listen to episode 150 if you didn't. Uh, Interestingly enough, episode 149 was the most popular podcast episode ever on the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. So that's exciting. So I do appreciate those of you who are sharing it, whether it's in social media or with your friends or with uh, your your fishing group. Uh, that's a great way to spread the word. I also appreciate any sort of uh, reviews that you post on iTunes, uh, ratings, and, and things like that. They're always very, very helpful for getting the podcast in front of more eyes and ears. So I, I am very, very appreciative of that. Today, I got three things that I'll go over. And the first one is an email from Tom. And Tom actually, I think, lives relatively close to me, uh, north of Boston. And so Tom writes, uh, Good morning, Matthew. I just finished listening to your latest episode on small stream rods. It was very informative, as are many of your shows. My question is, what is considered a small stream? Is it a stream that's right around 30 feet? Or do you mean feeder streams that you could skip across on rocks without getting your feet wet? Um, I'm bringing a 9-foot 5-weight, but uh, should I look for 7-foot 4-weights to fish these better? Um, And the White Mountains up in New Hampshire are kind of where I fish to give you an idea of what I plan on on fishing more. Uh, Please share with me your thoughts. Thanks. Thanks for the show and for the website. Well, Tom, thank you for listening to the podcast and reading the website. So it's a great question, and I, I kind of feel really silly even uh, having to answer this, not because it's a bad question, it's a great question, but because 
I, not I don't pride myself, but I really do have a lot of effort into defining my terms. And there's some things that seem like givens to me, and certainly to all of us, that I should have gone ahead and given a better definition for. And a small stream certainly fits that bill. So if you live somewhere where you have huge rivers, then a river that's like maybe even 50 feet across, you might say, well, that's a small stream. Uh, if you live somewhere where there's lots of little mountain creeks, then a tiny little feeder creek that's essentially a trickle that may only hold fish uh, in, in high water seasons, then that's what you consider a small stream. I kind of, in my mind, I take all of the data of everywhere I've fished, and that's really how I determine what is a large river and what is a small stream. So I'm thinking that 30-foot width is basically the average width. This is probably a good designation. So I think Tom hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of streams that I fish that are much, much, much narrower than that, and there's some that wide out, widen out into much wider pools. Um, a great example is I was down in Virginia this last weekend, and I was driving through some of these streams that I uh, used to fish quite a bit when I was younger. And there's a couple of rivers that maybe only hit 20, 25 feet in a few different places. So I definitely consider those small streams. And then as I was driving back home, I drove over a couple of creeks in Pennsylvania, and there were some spring creeks that, you know, they're small-ish, relatively speaking, but they don't fish like small streams. They've got really big fish, they've got really deep holes, and they're smaller than, like, you know, the Delaware River, smaller than, a, than certainly something like the Mississippi or the Ohio or something like that. But I don't see them as small streams, yet at the same time, there's other spring creeks in that area that... They, they just fish smaller. They're shallower. They're not as wide. They're, um, the, the fish might be a little bit smaller. And so it's a really subjective measurement. And so I can really appreciate Tom's question. And inevitably, with all the small stream content that I've put out over the years, other people have had that question as well. So I guess my answer is, is that when I say small stream, I usually am meeting like mountain high gradient streams um, on the East Coast. And maybe that is a very biased and a very narrow definition, but that's kind of my my width and size and imagery that I talk about when I talk about small streams. And then the second part of his question, um, which I think is a totally valid question also, is, you know, do I need to go to a seven foot four weight? And I would say if this is where you're gonna be fishing a lot and there is overhanging foliage or something else that's that's making it harder to cast then yeah you, you will want to downsize to a shorter rod but if you have open wide open space then by all means fish that nine foot five weight that's a perfectly fine rod to fish on, on a uh, even a smaller stream because you know you're going to be able to cast longer you're going to be able to do some high stick nymphing you're going to be able to mend easier and a five weight is still going to feel like a fight uh, on a fish. It's it's not like downsizing to a four weight is going to make the rod double over. So great question. Small streams are relative to wherever you live, but I think that all of us can look at a tumbling mountain stream or a small spring creek um, or even just a little feeder uh, feeder creek into a large river and say that's that's what we're talking about when we're saying small stream. But thank you for calling me out on not defining my terms. It's an excellent question, and I'm always happy to go back and revisit something that I make assumptions about, but uh, you shouldn't assume if you've if you've heard that before. 
My next comment comes from Greg, and Greg writes in response to an article I wrote called Laughing at Form Fly Fishing Function. Laughing at Form Fly Fishing Function. And here I kind of poke fun at some of the trends in fly fishing clothing over the years. I touch on the color palettes, I touch on some of the styles and things like that, uh, as well as the gear that we like to surround ourselves, literally surround ourselves with. And this is what Greg writes. He says, ha, this is all so true. When I started, I was, quote, that guy. I can make fun of myself now. I do currently have top dollar boots and waders, but not about the, quote, look anymore. It's more for functionality and durability. The more years I fish, I think I find I'm leaving more and more behind. When I started, you would have had thought I was hiking 10 miles to a secret river. I had every gadget hanging from me like a Christmas tree, when essentially I could see my car parked right behind me. You live and you learn. This is such a great post, and the John Denver clip is great. Thanks for the share. So real quick, there's a video of John Denver embedded on that article, laughing at form fly fishing function, of him fishing in these like teal blue waders. And I think uh, I mentioned when I when I talked about the podcast, the, the, the excuse me, the article on the podcast, uh, the week it came out that you know if you have that kind of money, if you're a, a music superstar, then you can wear whatever color waders you want. But it's just interesting to see styles change. Uh, working at a fly shop in the late 90s, some of the stuff that was cutting edge that all the young guys were wearing is not what young guys are wearing now. Um, you know, it's, things are so cyclical. And But Greg touches on something that I think we, we all arrive at eventually. We really do pursue what works best, not what we're told should work best or necessarily looks best. So a great example of this is, you know, I just have fallen in love with long sleeve t-shirts. Um, that is just my favorite thing to fish in. And I'm totally content fishing with like the $75 one from the high name fishing company. I'm also totally comfortable fishing with the ones that I get from Target. Uh, and the reason why is because it's comfortable. It dries fast. It protects me from the sun and bugs. And as long as it's not in an incredibly gaudy color and it's not ill-fitting, I'm totally fine wearing it. And similarly with the gear, like I have just a ridiculous amount of junk, right? I've got some really, really good stuff and things that I have duplicates of. It's unnecessary, but I'm happy to have it so I can, you know, use different things for different situations. I, I have the ability to be very particular about what particular piece of gear I use in any given situation. But to the point where I was looking for something for an article and I couldn't find it. There's, there's enough stuff where I, I basically lost a piece of gear in all of my gear. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of you have that experience. But, you know, what Greg says about having every gadget hanging from him like a Christmas tree, uh, that's I, I mention that all the time. Like, why do you want to jingle and jangle as you walk through the woods? Uh, that drives me absolutely bananas. And, and it's not so much the sound, it's what the sound represents. So I was hiking with a buddy recently and we're coming out of the mountains and I just couldn't reach behind me on my pack to, uh, to adjust a pair of nippers or forceps that was banging against uh, another metal object. And he was just joking, like, well, is this necessary? The sound is certainly unnecessary, but is the, the, what is causing the sound necessary? And it's a totally great question. Did I need those things? And did I need those things hanging from my pack? Could I have put them somewhere where they would be inobtrusive and not obnoxious to our ears? And the answer to both of those questions is absolutely, I could have. Um, and I just, I just have pared down my gear so much. 
uh, planning on going on a little bit longer trip here in a couple of weeks. And I'm thinking like, I just need flies and nippers and forceps and just a couple things to help my fly float, a couple things to help me get my fly down. And if I want to have a bunch of random backup stuff, just throw it in a duffel bag and leave it in the back of the car. But I don't need to take it on the river. I'd be much happier having a second beverage on the river. I'd be much happier having, you know, a, a bag of snacks like my boys were talking about last week on the river. And like Greg said, you know, more often than not, you can see your car when you when you're fishing on a big river and you you know park relatively close to the spot you want to fish and you walk out there. Um, and if you're hiking, then you need to be a minimalist anyway. So. You know, being about the look is nice. And I do like things that look good. But if I'm going to be my, myself in the woods, then that is certainly not the highest priority. And and at the same time, if that's what you like, then that's fine. Go for it. Um, I don't buy ugly clothes on purpose. And sometimes I buy ugly clothes if they're on sale on purpose just because it's not a bad idea. I got a couple ugly shirts recently that um, haven't won any awards in the style category, but I have them anyway. All right, the last one is actually two. So if you have been reading or paying attention to Casting Across for any amount of time, you know that I've been doing throwback gear reviews. Um, And what these are is reviews on gear that's anywhere between 10, 20, 25 years old. And so I talk about the piece of gear, but I also uh, talk about kind of my experience with it. Because after you use a piece of equipment for any period of time, uh, you, you grow attached to it. And again, fly fishing is not about the stuff, but the stuff comes with us. And so I have rods that I have affinity for. I have reels that I have memories with. And it could have been any given reel, but it just so happened to be this one, or it just happened to be the rod that I was using. And so I talk about it, and I think we can all kind of appreciate that. And so th- these articles get great pop. Uh, people respond to them, and they, they show up in search results because when was the last time somebody did a review on a 25-year-old rod? So if somebody Googles it, try to find like um, what the going price on eBay is for a rod like that, I pop up, which is great uh, for, for traffic for the website, but also it drives engagement. So I had two uh, um, comments on an article called Throwback Gear Review Teton Reel. So the Teton Reel is both the name of the model um, of the uh, and the brand. There's the Teton, and then there's the Teton Tioga or Tioga. Um, and I actually had two comments in the last couple of weeks, even though this article came out years ago. The first one was um, from Dan, and he says, I have this very real and is a beast with, a be- with beauty. It is a beast with beauty. The company has a great story, too, and was once a partner of another company, I can't recall, who advertised these gorgeous reels I coveted in the late 80s. Landed one on eBay a few years ago. And then maybe the same Dan, maybe a different Dan. Maybe he did some of the, the sleuth work that he was alluding to, or maybe it was a different Dan, just a, a coincidence. But a couple weeks later wrote, I've got one of these and love it. Mine has a fake wood insert on the center and a trout etched on the counterweight. Bulletproof, so reliable. Great drag. Got my first keeper striper on it. I do think the story of the company is of interest as it is linked to another classic, J, I believe it's Ryle or Real. Here's a link, and you can find that link. It's uh, through Fiberglass Fly Riders, and it's on, on my website on the Teton rev- uh, Reel Review, or you can just go to Fiberglass Fly Riders and put in Ryle, R-Y-A-L-L. Um, and basically, and I'm inserting myself into Dan's uh, comment here, it's a fascinating story about... Um, 
the two different real manufacturers and kind of how they, they started together. So Ryle and Teton. So he goes on to say, I've got no dog in the fight between them, but do enjoy the story. The Ryle was the reel I wanted way back and finally landed one about two years ago. Worth the wait. So Dan and Dan, whether you're two different Dans or the same Dan, thank you very much for chiming in. And also, thank you for sending me down a rabbit hole. Like, I knew about the Teton reels because they were unique in like a Cabela's catalog like 25 years ago where you see okay all of the Orvis reels there's like six models you see all of the um, Abel reels you see all of the Lamson reels all the Ross reels and they have like five or six models each right and then you saw the Teton and it was all by itself and then the Tioga they had branded differently even and so just to me it stuck out and the drag, which is one of the interesting points of connection between the two brands that you mentioned, was what stood out to me. For the cost, it was what I wanted. Now, this was this is an incredibly durable reel. I've got a couple of chips in mine, but it still goes strong. And it is a pretty reel, too. And it's, it's pretty wild because it's, it, it's right on the edge of when uh, aesthetics begin to change in reels. But itself, it's got this kind of almost like uh, leaf-shaped um, stamping uh, in the, the the cage of the reel and then like Dan said there's a, a wooden insert and a little etched trout in the counterweight it's just a it's a fun funky pretty little reel and it's bulletproof like I wrote about in this review it's it was my sole striper reel for quite a while uh, with an eight weight line on it um, I think my model's a seven eight and I've used it for bass and, you know, the, the drag only gets a little bit of use in, in that situation. But it's just a nice solid reel with good pickup, a good sound. Um, it's just consistent, a little bit of a wider arbor. Just love the reel. And so it's cool then to go back and see a little bit of the story. It's stuff that, as I do research on these articles, you, you really do have to turn to these forums. Fiberglass Fly Riders is one of them. The, um, there's a, the bamboo one is... Uh, uh, another uh, forum that has a lot of information because you know people weren't thinking let's save catalogs I did that for years and years where I had a stack of catalogs in my my room like in high school and then I had them in college then probably when I got married um, I said you know this isn't worth keeping but now I'm kind of kicking myself because that's just a treasure trope of just data and I know the the rod and reel manufacturers um, have that but uh, it would be great to have that to flip through and to, to have these memories and have them come back. And, you know, I can still recall those, like I said, old Cabela's and Bass Pro Shop fly fishing catalogs where I saw the Teton and said, you know what, that's a reel I'm going to find uh, because it seems to have a lower price point than some of the equitable models. And it looks like it is, it is a good performer. And talking to a couple people in fly shops, that's one that I end up getting. And obviously Dan and a handful of other people on the uh, Teton article have said the same thing. I'm looking at the bottom right now and see one, two, three, four, five uh, comments on that. Um, for for other people who, who have their reel and they like it. So happy to keep fishing it. And, uh, you know, if you see one at a yard sale or you see one pop up on an auction and you need a reel in that weight class, then definitely go for it. I think it's an awesome reel if you're going to be fighting larger trout or if you're doing some lighter saltwater fishing. All right. Well, those are your fly fishing accusations. Now, real quick, why do you call it fly fishing accusations, Matt? That's a great question. Uh, when I teach, and I've been teaching for quite a few years now, I've always ended my lessons with questions, comments, accusations, um, kind of a disarming 
stupid thing that I do, but I thought I would incorporate that as opposed to like fly fishing Q and A because it isn't always Q and A. It's it's more of a hey, you know, you said this, I thought this, and now let let me talk about it again on on, on the podcast. So if you have questions, if you have statements, if you truly do have an accusation, please send it in. I'm happy to field it. Um, I, as I always say, I will get back to you one way or another, whether it's on the podcast or whether it's in just a, a private email, and I'm happy to do that. Um, on a similar note, kind of an administrative detail note, um, new sponsor coming next week, new sponsor of the podcast. It is another non-fly fishing product, but this one I think will be of interest to you, particularly if you have a desk job. Um, I'm really excited about this one. Don't want to let the cat out of the bag yet, but it is something I've been using for a few days now, and I'm looking forward to talking about it because I, 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 whether it be a company that sponsors the podcast or whether it be a product that I'm reviewing, you're going to get my honest take on whatever the thing is. Um, I, I have no dog in the fight of um, propping up companies and products that I don't believe in. Similarly, I don't get paid, let alone paid enough, to talk about stuff that I don't believe in and be disingenuous with you. Uh, it's the last thing that I want. But if you have questions about anything that I review, that are my recommendations uh, on, on the podcast, like I've said, feel free to reach out, let me know, ask pointed questions. How would you use it in this situation? How is it held up to this? Uh, how does it fit with XYZ? Happy to talk that through with you. Um, so look forward to that new sponsorship uh, commercial next week. This week on the website, the first article is called Trout and Feather September 21. So this is my monthly contribution to Tim Camisa's Trout and Feather website. So he does incredibly great fly tying videos. So once a month, I post some of his videos on my site. He posts an article on his site from me, and we kind of can expose our audiences to each other's content, which has been great. It's It's been a lot of fun to do. Tim's a great guy, and like I said, excellent fly tying content. And so this m- month, I feature a uh, pheasant tail nymph, an easy pheasant tail jig, as well as some Icelandic flies that Tim and uh, Buddy has talked about on his YouTube channel. So two relatively short, great videos. And then my article is called Spend or Save. And this is something that I've done on the podcast before. I think I went like head to toe with fly fishing gear. Should you spend money on it or save money for something more important? So this is a, a written form of that where I go with three things that I think you should spend more money on and three things that I think you should save money on. Now, you might have a completely different paradigm for how to spend money on fly fishing, but uh, you know this is my take on it, and I give a couple of good rationales as to why I do what I do. And then Wednesday's article, I called it The Peace of Fly Fishing. Peace spelled P-I-E-C-E, The Peace of Fly Fishing. And it talks about how fly fishing should be and truly is, whether you say it is or not, it's only one little piece of the greater puzzle of your life, and fly fishing is always only just a piece of wherever you fish. And that struck me this last weekend, as I was as I was saying, I was in Virginia, and I didn't bring a fly rod at all. We hiked, we did history stuff, we ate, we did all those fun things, but I didn't bring a fly rod at all, and so I was 
on a lot of the water that I used to fish and that I still fish when I go back and visit, but I wasn't thinking about fishing. And so I was focusing on completely different things. Without the possibility of fishing, it really changed the way I looked at nature. It changed the way I looked at water, and it changed the way I looked at the communities on or around those those streams. And so it was kind of kind of a cool thing. And it, it didn't make me say, well, I'm going to fish less now to have these experiences more. But I think what it what it did for me and what I encourage you to do through this article is say, you know, when you do go to these places, take a moment to pay attention. You know, don't pine for your fly rod. I mean, it's okay to do that, but don't uh, be so sad that you're not fishing in your favorite stream when you're hiking along its banks or where you're driving along it, that you don't take chances to notice what else is going on. If we lift our eyes from the river, we might see a lot more that when we come back to the river, it'll add to our experience and add to our appreciation. It has to do with the water, has to do with the ecosystem, and it has to do with the people that are there now and the people that came before us and the history that you might find um, when you are fishing wherever you're fishing. This week's recommendation on the podcast is a pair of pants. A pair of pants. It is a pair of pants that I bought two pairs of recently from EMS, Eastern Mountain Sports. Now, up here in the Northeast, we've got like three or four of them around me. Depending on where you live, there's a chance this is a catalog-only situation for you, but it's kind of a lot like a, a local REI. But these are fantastic. They look like khakis. They look like just kind of casual pants, but they have uh, incredible breathability, and they're very stretchy. I hiked in them. I drove in them. They're going to become fishing pants, and right now they're on sale for thirty-two fifty. They retail for sixty-five bucks. I don't know if they're worth sixty-five bucks because there's no bells and whistles. There's like a funky little like passport pocket or something like that on the side. But uh, for this sale price, they are excellent. And so I don't know if they're on sale because they're closing them out and they're going to introduce a uh, new uh, um, product. But using this, uh, this four-way stretch fabric, uh, it just creates a really comfortable pant. And so I found that like you know, an, an EMS brand or an REI brand is going to be generally a little bit less expensive than one of the big name brands. But there's a chance they're made in the same factory using the exact same materials. So I've been really impressed with these. If you want a lightweight pant that you can wear wet weighting or something you can wear under your waders that's going to be breathable, um, whether by its, be by itself or with a wicking base layer, this would be a perfect pant. And it, it's cut in a modern cut. So a little bit more fitted around the uh, the hips and down to the knees. It's not super baggy. You're not going to be swishing as you're walking through the water or through the woods. So again, uh, this particular pant um, is called the EMS Men's Compass Four Point Pant. Um, they have a women's version. They have fancier versions. But I'm a big fan of this. And for the price and the fact that I had some rewards through EMS, I picked a couple of pairs up. So I'll put a link to this kind of pant on the show notes of this page on castingacross.com. Whether there's any left in your size when you get there, I can make no guarantees. But just check out their website and see what else they have in that similar vein. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where there's three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv 
Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.